All right, well, good morning once again. Can I uh, have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16? And as we work our way through Matthew's Gospel on Sunday morning here at Calvary, we come to verse 21 of chapter 16. It says, from that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, you are an offense to me. You are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Well, what a contrast, right? You've been with us the last few weeks between Peter's earlier confession of Jesus' person and here his denunciation of Jesus' mission. It wasn't long ago he was talking on behalf of God. And Jesus praised him. Okay, flesh and blood, Peter, has not declared this to you, my father. You know, when Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Oh, Peter, you're really becoming spiritual. This was a revelation from my father. Peter thought, wow, I'm getting revelations. Turns right around. Thou speaks on behalf of Satan. Okay? I mean, it does teach us an important lesson. How that one minute, we as believers, and we don't even realize it many times, but one minute we can be, you know, speaking on behalf of the Lord into somebody's life, and the next minute we could really be speaking on behalf of the devil into their life, maybe trying to discourage them from doing something God is calling them to do that we don't think could possibly be of God, right? And we'll see how this works in a moment, but let's you know, let's first develop the passage. Now, Jesus and his disciples are still up in the area of Caesarea Philippi, where they had gone to kind of lay low, all right, uh, to keep Jesus' enemies from trying to to kill him before his time. Now, that would never happen, but why inflame the situation even more? We're getting very close to the cross at this point. Tensions are high. In fact, at this point in Matthew's gospel, we're about six months from Jesus' crucifixion. So things have been ratcheted up pretty much. People are wound pretty tight. Jesus' enemies want to kill him in the worst possible way. And uh, his supporters want to take him by force and make him king because that's what they believe Messiah uh, is to be. So in verse 20, we'll read once again, From that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and be raised the third day. This marks a new phase in the ministry of Jesus, which really coincides to the fact that he has now entered into the final leg of his ministry, the homestretch, if you will. Before this point, Jesus had only hinted to his disciples about his death and resurrection. Now he begins for the first time to proclaim it openly and repeatedly. You say, why repeatedly? Because it was so difficult for them to grasp that he needed to keep repeating and reinforcing the reality of it in their minds. That, guys, there's coming a time soon when I'm going to be betrayed, arrested, beaten, tried, and crucified, but on the third day, I'm going to rise from the dead. And even though he had repeated that numerous times to them, it still took them by surprise that first resurrection Sunday morning, right? 
when the women had gone early to the tomb to finish preparing Jesus' body for burial. Remember, they had to hastily finish up on Friday uh, because the sun was setting. They couldn't do a proper job of preparing the body for burial, so they quickly did some things, and he was placed in the tomb, but they wanted to come back Sunday morning to finish the job properly. When they got there, of course, the stone had been rolled away. They looked inside, saw a couple of angels. One of them said to the women, Why are you seeking the living among the dead? He isn't here. He is risen. Go tell his disciples. And so they run back to tell these great men of faith, the disciples, right? Hey, Jesus is risen. Get out of here, they said. Get out of here. We don't believe what you're saying. Come on. But Peter and John did get up and run to the tomb and found that it was just as the women had said. So even though the Lord had told them numerous times that he was going to be crucified and then rise from the dead, they, uh, they were caught off guard. They didn't really uh, listen to what he was saying. And there's a reason for that. We'll talk about it more in a moment. But he said, guys, we are going to eventually be going to Jerusalem. And there I'm going to suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. These were the three groups that made up the Jewish Sanhedrin which was the Jewish high council. These men were Israel's leaders, and therefore they represented the nation. When they rejected their Messiah and went as far as to have him crucified, what it did was it sealed God's judgment upon them, a judgment that God would bring upon the nation in 70 A.D. when he brought the Romans against the nation of Israel, and the Romans wound up killing over a million Jews. The rest were scattered around the world, And the nation of Israel at that point ceased to exist until May 14, 1948, when God regathered his people back into the land the first time in 1900 years, as he prophesied in his word he was going to do. And on that day, they became a nation again, which let all of us know we are getting now very close to the return of Jesus Christ, because God had prophesied that just before the Messiah would return, He would gather his people back into the land in preparation for that event. But it just tells us also that God holds nations accountable for the actions of their leaders, especially nations who elect their leaders. You better pray for your country. We had better pray for our nation. We are in serious trouble. God is not pleased with this nation. I'm convinced he is very angry. It's only his grace that is keeping him from pouring out judgment up until this point. We need to pray for our nation. Our leaders are making some very bad decisions. And they have the support of many of the people in this country. So we need to pray. Then verse 22 says, Then Peter took him aside. Okay. Guys, I'm going to the cross soon. I'm going to be killed. Third day rise again. Peter took him aside. Began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall not happen to you. Now, look. Let's not just, you know, make Peter the fall guy here. I mean, no doubt he was speaking on behalf of all the disciples. Okay? Do you ever know somebody who says what you want to say, but you don't have enough guts to say it? I don't know if Peter was ADD or what he... But everything that came into his head, he had to share. Okay? And no doubt he was speaking for all of the disciples because all of them believed that Jesus was eventually going to lead them in a revolt against the Roman Empire, overthrow it, and establish his kingdom. You say, why did they believe that? Because that's what every Jew believed. That's what they were all taught from the time they were just old enough to understand. 
that when Messiah finally came, he would throw off the yoke of Gentile oppression. At this time, it was Roman oppression. And he would establish a glorious new kingdom on the earth over which he would reign from Jerusalem. That's what they were thinking. That's what was on their mind. But guess what? He's talking about going to the cross. He's talking about dying. And look, a dead Messiah can't do what we're looking for him to do. That's why they were horrified when he said, guys, I'm going to be killed soon. You know, I'm going to rise again, though. See, they didn't hear that. Why not? Because it's kind of a psychological phenomenon that happens when we hear bad news. That's why your doctor will tell you, if you, especially if you uh, had gone for some tests about the possibility of a serious condition that you may have, the doctor will tell you, when you come back, bring somebody with you. Because if it is bad news and the doctor lets you know, yes, the tests were positive, at that point our brains t- tend to click off. And we don't hear what else the doctor says about what we need to do or what the treatments might be. And I think that's what happened with these guys. I think that you know, they, their hopes were on the kingdom. And they were all charged up about him establishing the kingdom. And he's talking about dying. Well, I think at that point their brains shut off. Okay, They didn't really hear him say, but on the third day I'm going to rise again. Which we know that was the case because that resurrection Sunday morning, they were caught off guard. Okay, They shouldn't have been. He told them. But here's the thing. You might not realize this, but it says Peter rebuked the Lord. I want you to understand that Peter's rebuke was not like you may think. It was not condescending, harsh, condemning. It was more of a rebuke of concern. Uh, actually, the Greek is more along the lines of this. Peter saying to Jesus, May God in His mercy spare you this. No way this shall happen to you. And the Greek is he repeated it several times. Here's the problem. (laughs) Not that any of us have this problem, but here's the problem. Peter had a habit of arguing with the Lord, challenging the validity of what he was saying. We see it right here, right? But here's the deal. Peter had a tendency of arguing with the Lord when the Lord said something or even told him to do something. We see it here. We see it on the night before his crucifixion in Matthew uh, 26 when at one point the Lord turns to his guys and says, Guys, look, before this night is out, all are you going to be made to stumble because of me? And Peter said, Although these guys are made to stumble, I will never be made to stumble. And Jesus says, Peter... Before the rooster crows twice, you're going to have denied me three times. Lord, certainly you're mistaken. I would die first before I would deny you. You say, well, no, wait a minute now. That was pre-Pentecost. You know, Peter wasn't filled with the Spirit. We can expect him to act carnally you know, before the Spirit filled these guys. Well, when did that happen? Acts 2? Well, Acts 10, all right? He's in Joppa. Staying with a, a guy named Simon, and the Peter goes up to the rooftop, which is a patio, waiting for lunch to be prepared. And suddenly the Lord gives him a vision. He sees this giant sheet coming down from heaven, held with the four corners. When he gets down to where Peter is, it opens up, and in it are all kinds of animals, both clean and unclean. And the Lord says to Peter, Peter, rise, kill, and eat. And Peter says, What? Not so, Lord. I have never eaten anything unclean from my youth. Look, whenever we challenge the wisdom of God in our lives or the validity 
of what he commands us to do in his word, we are rebelling against him and we are acting as Lord of our own lives. And folks, not only is that a serious sin, it happens to be the very sin Satan committed in heaven. God created Satan to be, well, he was Lucifer at that time. He created Lucifer to be the top angel. He was called a cherub, the anointed cherub who covered, or in other words, who was over all the others. He was the top angel in heaven, extremely beautiful, incredibly brilliant, intelligent, very gifted. He was the worship leader in heaven, the Bible tells us. His voice was like the sound of a thousand pipe organs giving praise to God. But he wasn't happy with being number two. He wanted to be like the Most High. And I won't read it to you. You can turn to it uh, this week and read Isaiah 14, verses 12 to 14, where Satan says, I'm going to paraphrase, I don't want to be number two. I want to be like the Most High. I will do this. I will ascend above the throne. I will do this. The five I wills of Satan. Basically, statements of rebellion, not happy with the place God had ordained for Lucifer, but wanting to usurp the place of God. See, anytime we reject what God has said, anytime we say, Lord, I don't like what you're doing in my life. I'm not happy I'm here. I don't agree with what you're doing. And I think that this would be better for me. And I go out and do that. I am rebelling against what God has ordained for my life. And I'm usurping the place of God. Well, Satan exported that rebellion to the earth. We read in Genesis 3. And you remember the story, of course, how he took the form of the serpent and beguiled Eve to eat of the fruit which God had forbidden. And Eve ate, and of course, then she gave to Adam and he ate. And again, what did Satan use to tempt Eve? God has told you not to eat. Certainly God hasn't said that. Look at that tree. Doesn't it look as good as any other fruit-bearing tree in the garden? Look at that. Look at the fruit of that tree. Look, it's the same. God knows if you eat that fruit, you'll be like him. Your eyes will be open. He doesn't want the competition. He's trying to keep you from something good. So she ate the fruit, gave to Adam, and he did eat. And now the rebellion that began in heaven was exported to the earth. And here it is. It was challenging the validity of God's word. God doesn't know what he's talking about. I mean, I know better than God in this situation what's best in my life. It was challenging the validity of God's word. In essence, it was man saying, not so, Lord. Just like Peter. This can't be right. You know, surely, God, you're mistaken. I mean, Lord, I know you told me to do this or that or whatever or not get married to this person because they're not a believer, but Lord, we really love each other and I think I can save him. I think it's going to be okay if I marry him, even though he's an unbeliever. Challenging what God has said. And we do it all the time. We don't realize it. Maybe some of us more than others. Not so, Lord. You know, the word Lord, we often use as a a name. It's not really a name. It's a title. A title that speaks of the relationship of a master to his slave. The Greek word for Lord is kurios. And the Greek word for slave, which every place in your New Testament where you see the word servant, it's always the Greek word doulos, it always means slave. And I bring that out because here's an important point. All All slaves were servants, but not all servants were slaves. 
Some servants were paid employees. They could pick who they wanted to work for. If they didn't like what the boss was telling them to do, they could quit and find another job. If we think of ourselves as servants of Jesus Christ, we might inadvertently get the idea that he's our boss and we're an employee, which means I've got negotiating power. I can maybe say no to some of the things he wants me to do. See, this is the problem today. Too many people are looking at Jesus as a boss and not as a master. Too many of them see themselves as his employees instead of his slaves. And that's why if you think that way, verses like this don't make any sense. Where Jesus said, you can't serve two masters. If you look at that and read, an employee can't serve two bosses, well, what does that even mean? I've got two bosses. I've got two jobs, so I've got two bosses. For many people today in our society, work for more than one boss. But you see, a slave can't be a slave to two masters. And that's why you always have kurios, Lord, connected to the word doulos, slave, because nobody can be the Lord of nobody and nobody can be the slave of nobody. It's a, it's a union that has to be for one to legitimize the other. If Jesus Christ is truly our Lord, our Master, then there's no way we can say, not so, Lord. There's no way we can say, well, God, I'm not, Jesus, I'm not going to do that. I know you've said it. I don't think it's wise. I'm not going to do it. It's not good for me. And there's a lot of people in the body of Christ who call Jesus Lord, but don't really do what he has said. Remember what Jesus said in Luke 6, verse 46, to a group of disciples, his disciples. He had a lot of disciples. It wasn't just the 12 that followed him. Now, at one point, he turns to the whole group of them and says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and yet don't do the things that I tell you? He said, Many will stand before me on the day of judgment, and they will say to me, Lord, Lord, haven't we worked miracles in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many good works in your name? And I will say to them, Depart from me, I never knew you, you who practiced lawlessness. And the idea is this. They called him Lord, but they lived contrary to his laws, to his commandments. So Jesus said, why are you calling me Lord? I'm not your master. If, if I was really your master, you'd obey me. And because I'm not really your master or your, or your Lord, you're not really my people. My sheep hear my voice. If I'm your shepherd, listen, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me, John 10. That's the idea. If Jesus Christ is really a person's Lord, then they're going to want to follow what he has said. Now, we won't always do it perfectly. We're all human. We're all going to blow it. But the general pattern of your life should be obedience, and once in a while, you might blow it. But if a person just lives in rebellion against the Lord, if they live lawlessly, mostly in their life, once in a while maybe do a couple good things, well, Jesus is saying, you know what? You call me Lord, but I am not really your Lord. Don't call me Lord if you're not going to do what I tell you. So Peter took him on the side, began to rebuke the Lord. This won't happen to you, Lord. This shall not be. Verse 23. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me. You are 
not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Now, this was a harsh rebuke of Peter on the part of Jesus. Something along these lines. Get out of my sight, Satan. Which means adversary. You are a stumbling block to me. So, Peter the stone, whom Jesus had blessed, now becomes Peter the stumbling block, whom Jesus rebukes. And it happened right away. You say, well, what had changed? (laughs) Well, it was Peter's mindset. It was Peter's mindset. He was no longer mindful of the things of God, but now the things of men. Or in other words, his perspective had gone from the eternal to the temporal and from the spiritual to the carnal. You say, oh, that Peter. He's always blown it. Well, look, okay, lest we come down too hard on Peter, we often find ourselves in the same place in our walk, don't we? I'll just use myself as an example. I'm all, it's always amazed me. How spiritual I can be one minute and how carnal I can be the next, you know? It's, it's amazing how I can just spend a wonderful time with the Lord in prayer or in the Word where you just feel like, you know, so close to the Lord, right? You just feel His presence as you're there, maybe in prayer and so on, and then you get up from there, I do, and in a matter of just in a very short time, I, I want to rip the head off of a guy who just cut me off in traffic. And I'm thinking, who are you? You're a spiritual Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. I mean, come on. Get it together. I mean, one minute you're walking with the Lord, praising Jesus, you know, and sometimes it happens in the same car, I want to kill somebody, you know. I'm riding along, praising the Lord, and I'm going to cut you up, I'm going to kill you if I get it. No, you know, it's really sad to see it. And we all fall into it. But the answer really lies in what Jesus said to Peter here. You know, when he went from, you know, spiritual giant to, to carnal dirtbag, you know, over just over a few moments' time. He said to him, you are not mindful. Let's paraphrase. You are no longer mindful of the things of God, but now the things of man. Implying that Peter was mindful at one time, and we know he was. When he gave this incredible answer to Jesus, when he said, who do people say that I am? And at one point, as they gave what other people were saying, he he said, but who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of a living God. And Jesus praises Peter for being, uh, getting a revelation from the Father of this truth. But then Peter turns right around and begins now to focus more on the things of men. The things of men will be the things that unbelievers are preoccupied with. Those things that are highly esteemed by the people of this world. And I'll tell you the one that leads the list. Turn to Luke chapter 16. Luke 16, starting in verse 14. Now, the Pharisees, listen, who were lovers of money, also heard all these things, all these things that Jesus was teaching, and they derided him. They mocked him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Everything this world values, everything this world is obsessed with, everything this world highly esteems, fame, fortune, all these other things, 
These are an abomination to God. I mean, money is not a sin if it's used correctly. It's not money that's a sin, it's the love of money, which we'll see more in a moment. Money is one of those things that has stumbled, well, that the people of this world uh, most often gravitate to. Why? Because money is power. If I have money, I can buy influence, I can buy material things, I can buy pleasure. Money is a god to many people. That's why the Bible says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Now, no doubt, when Peter rebuked Jesus, it was because Peter was concerned for the Lord. But it's just as certain in my mind that Peter was thinking of himself as well. Because Peter, along with all the other disciples, you have to understand this, were looking for wealth and power as prime ministers when the kingdom was finally established. That was one of the main reasons that they started following Jesus. Because they did believe He was the Messiah. And because they believed He was the Messiah, he, they believed He was bringing a kingdom soon. A kingdom of power and glory and wealth and honor. And they were wanted to line up behind Him first to be in place to receive that power and authority. We know they, it was on their minds. They fought about it constantly. Who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom? There's a lot of people who follow Jesus not for who he is, but for what he gives. Or in other words, not for love, but for loot, to put it bluntly. In fact, today many in the church are actually promoting and teaching this very thing, that God's whole purpose for your life is wealth, blessings, material-wise. A teaching Paul thoroughly condemned. In fact, he said in 1 Timothy 6, he said this about these te people who teach this kind of thing. Let me read it to you. He said, their minds are corrupt, and they have turned their backs on the truth. To them, a show of godliness is just a way to become wealthy. Yet true godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. After all, we brought nothing with us when we came into the world, and we can't take anything with us when we leave it. So if we have enough food and clothing, let us be content. But people who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people craving money have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. The things of men are basically the things that Satan has filled this world with to get people to focus on this life and neglect the life to come. John put it this way in his first epistle. He said, do not love this world, this world system, because Satan is the God of it. Do not love this world nor the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but are from this world. And this world is fading away along with everything that people crave. But anyone who does what God, what pleases God will live forever. See, Satan has designed this world to appeal to our senses. And if he can stimulate our physical senses enough, 
to cause us to desire or crave or lust, really, after the things in the world, he can keep people away from the things of God. Peter loved the Lord. Peter was a true disciple. But even true disciples like Peter or those of us in this very room, even we who love the Lord, can have our focus shift from the spiritual and the eternal and begin to focus on this life. That's why Jesus warned us, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves can break in and steal. But instead, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where nobody can rip you off. And when you die, those things will be waiting for you when you get there. It's so easy to begin to focus less and less on the eternal and more and more on the temporal. And we're all prone to this. And the more we do it, the more we get entangled with the cares of this life, and the more the devil takes us out of the work of God. That's why we have to be proactive. All right. That's why what Paul says really matters. Don't set your mind on things here on the earth, but set your mind on things above. Let me quote it the way he really said it. Colossians 3.2 Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. Because Paul knew If we stop focusing on the eternal, the temporal is too powerful. And the devil has orchestrated the entire world to appeal to our flesh. It's unfortunate that we have churches that that's all they do is appeal to people's flesh. They call it faith. It's nothing more than appealing to the flesh because people want to hear that. People want a way to somehow sanctify their greed. They would never say it that way, but that's really what it is. Tell me how I can have God in the world, because that's really what I'm after. There's plenty of churches that will tell you how you can have God in the world, because God wants you to be wealthy. God wants you to be prosperous. God wants you to have nothing but blessings, they say. Well, God wants to bless you and I. But sometimes those blessings come through suffering. You want to be mindful of the things of God? That's where Peter blew it. You want to be mindful of the things of God than have the mind of Christ, very simply. Why don't you turn to Philippians 2. This is a passage you all know. Can I ask you to... (laughs) There was a little uh, commercial years ago for cornflakes, Kellogg's cornflakes. And uh, there's a point to this, by the way. Um, And the tagline was, taste them again for the first time. The reason that hit, that hit me so hard, I used to eat cornflakes when I was a kid. And after all those years, I had just bought another box. I mean, after like, you know, 25 years. And the first bite I tasted, I thought, you know, these are pretty good. I forgot how good these were. And then this commercial comes out, so that's why I remembered it, right? There are so many passages we have read and tasted. Can I ask you to read this again for the first time? Because this is the crux, not only of the passage, guys, it's the whole crux of our Christianity, as we're going to see in a moment. We talk about being mindful of the things of God, then we need to have the mind of Christ. Philippians 2, starting at verse 5, where Paul said, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. What mind, Paul? He's going to go on to tell us. Who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bond slave and coming in the likeness of men. What is Paul saying? He is saying that Jesus Christ loved us so much that instead of 
selfishly, because he's obviously not selfish. He's the antithesis of selfishness. He's totally selfless. But instead of grasping or holding on to equality with the Father and the Spirit, he came down, emptied himself of those things, and became one of us. Now listen to me. That does not mean he abandoned his deity. Jesus Christ never ceased being God, even in earthly form. But he did give up the glory that was his in heaven. The glory. He came down and became one of us. He had to. God can't die. God is spirit. And God didn't blow it, by the way. It was Adam, the first man. So Jesus had to repair or fix what Adam blew. In Adam all die, in Christ all should be made alive, the scriptures teach. He had to become one of us to die for us. He could have said, I'm not going down there. You know, being born in a manger, growing up in poverty, understanding for the first time what hunger and thirst and and tiredness and so on feels like. I'm not doing that. I'm not giving up my glory in heaven. But no, he loved us so much, he said, I am willing to lay aside all my glory to die for those who can't die for themselves that they might live with me forever. That's what he did. And so Paul says, He made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bond slave, coming in the likeness of men, verse 8, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. You want to have the mindset of Christ, first of all, it's a humble mindset. Whenever I lose my temper with somebody, you know what that is? That's me saying, that's my pride coming through. Is that, if I was really a humble man, I would never want to choke somebody who has just cut me off. Now, honestly, I've gotten a lot better. Okay, just so you know. I do think there's growth here. But when you're really filled with the Spirit, you're walking in humility. And when somebody does something like that to you, you don't want to retaliate. You want to pray for them. You want to pray for them. So you want to have, be mindful of the things of God. You want to have the mind of Christ. First of all, it's a humble mind. But a humility that laid himself down as a sacrifice, who became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. How pivotal is the cross? You know, the reason Jesus called Peter Satan was not because he actually was Satan or that he was demon-possessed. He called him Satan because that's the one thing Satan tried to get Jesus to do, which was to sidestep the cross. Peter said, Lord, don't go to the cross. This can't happen to you. You've got to reign. See? Very thing Satan did. Remember when Satan came to tempt Jesus in Matthew 4? Gave him three temptations. The last one was where he took him up to a high mountain and in a moment's time showed him all the kingdoms of the earth and said, all these are mine. I can give them to whomever I will. I'll give them to you if you'll bow down and worship me. And what did Jesus say? He said, away with you, Satan. Basically, get behind me. Get away from me. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God only, and him shall you serve. Now, what was actually going on here? What was Satan really tempting Jesus with? Here's, let me tell you what was going on. Satan is basically saying to him, Jesus, I know why you've come to the earth. You've come to go to the cross to die, that eventually you might bring the kingdom and reign. I'll tell you what, all the kingdoms of the earth are mine. I'll give them to you, just don't go to the cross. You bypass the cross, I'll give you the glory without the shame 
without the suffering, without the pain. Praise the Lord. Jesus didn't put himself above us, right? We praise him that he didn't put himself above the Father's will. He says, Satan, take a hike. Take a hike. I am here to worship my Father and to serve him and fulfill the ministry he has given me to do. Peter may have thought he had Jesus' best interests in mind when he tried to discourage the Lord from going to the cross. But that was the very reason Jesus had come into the world, to die in our place, that we might live forever because of what he did. And to try to get Jesus to do otherwise, Peter was actually teaming up with Satan against the purposes of God. You know, Satan is still working very actively in the world today, trying to get people to think that they can go to heaven while bypassing the cross. And you know what? Many so-called, so-called ministers of Jesus Christ have teamed up with the devil to promote that very teaching. I hear it all the time. All the time from radio and TV. Okay, preachers. Come to Jesus. You want to be healthy? You want to be wealthy? You come to Jesus and He'll give you this blessing and that blessing. It's all about what He's going to give you. But I never hear them preach the cross. Oh, they make mention of the cross. They give it lip service. But they don't really preach it. It's all about what God's going to do for you. Not how you are to die for Him. But let me say this to you folks. A crossless Christianity is a Christless Christianity. And a Christless Christianity won't save anyone. And that's why Jesus goes on in verses 24 to 27 to teach the centrality and the absolute necessity of the cross if we are truly going to be one of his disciples, which means someday live with him forever in his kingdom. So you see the correlation now. And we will look at that next time. But you see how this fits together. Okay, Peter tried to get Jesus from fulfilling his mission. I'm not saying Peter didn't have a good heart. I mean, I'm not saying he wasn't really concerned about the Lord and the suffering that the Lord was saying he was going to be going into. Lord, don't do that. We need you here. You can't die. But what Peter didn't realize is he was thinking carnally. If Jesus didn't die, Peter, whether you became prime minister on the earth of a kingdom doesn't matter. Because when you die, that was going to be it if Jesus didn't die to provide eternal life. Peter was thinking temporally. Often God's people think temporally. We don't see the big picture. We're so focused on time, we don't understand that the purposes of God sometimes involve suffering, sometimes, all the time involve self-denial. There's a cross in it for all of us. And Jesus went on to tell Peter and all of his disciples, I have to go to the cross. And if you don't go to the cross, if you don't take up your cross and follow me, you're not really my disciples. And we'll see next time all that that entailed and how important it was, how central it is to our whole Christian experience. The cross is central. No wonder Satan attacks it constantly and churches have abandoned the teaching of the cross. Some churches won't even let their worship people sing about the cross. How sad. We'll see that next time. Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for your word. Your word is truth. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, 
that you were the Word made flesh who dwelt among us. And Lord, we thank you that you were so unselfish. You were the absolute epitome of a selfless servant who put the needs of us above your own desires. And Lord, you went to the cross because of your love. Nobody hung you on that cross. The Romans didn't put you there. The Jews didn't put you there. It was love that put you there. And we thank you for your great love. And now, Lord, we pray that you give us grace to understand that whenever we try to bypass the cross in our own lives, we are not fulfilling your will. We are not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men, things of this world. Give us grace, Lord. Nobody wants to suffer. You didn't want to suffer. You despised the shame. But you were focused on the glory that would come afterwards and the reality that because of what you did, you would gather many people to yourself in salvation, that we would enter into a kingdom with you someday, a kingdom of glory, a kingdom that would never end. Give us grace, Lord, to get our eyes off of this earth, to set our mind on things above, not on things of this world. Father, we thank you for your great grace. We ask all this now in Jesus' precious name. Amen.